0: Black indigenous people of color and white people actually have different internal work to do. And that's a really important thing to name. Some of the work we need to do together, some of it we need to do separately. Black people and people of color need to learn how to process their anger. Because if we only know how to express anger, but not how to process it, then we're just continually just letting it move through us and re-traumatize us and putting it out in the world. And white people, for example, uh, there's so many things that need to be processed for on both sides, but one that I see with a lot of people in my community is a little bit about the shame that comes up when they're doing their social justice work and like realizing like how much harm whiteness has done in the world and then feeling so bad about it and then like not knowing what to do and not knowing how to say anything about it because they're trying to be perfectionists. The thing is, is to be able to sit with it, not to torture yourself, to move through
1: it. Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Justin Michael Williams, author, activist, meditation teacher, and musician. His book, Stay Woke, established him as a pioneering millennial voice for diversity and inclusion in wellness. Justin and I recently spoke at the Esalen Institute, where he was the artist in residence during the month of July. He shared his thoughts on racism, healing, virtue signaling, and the decolonization of wellness practices.
0: You know, I grew up with the kind of trauma that I think a lot of kids right now are dealing with, especially youth of color. You know, I grew up in a home with gunshot holes on the outside of my house. We were poor. I didn't know we were poor. Like, we weren't like the poor people in my city. We were like the not poor people. But when I got out of where I grew up and ended up going to college, I was like, oh, Oh, I was poor. Like, I didn't know that I was poor, you know? Um, And my parents worked really hard to do everything they could for us. Um, But, you know, I grew up with domestic violence in the home, um, alcoholism in the home, Uh, like I said, gunshot holes on the outside of the house, and really had a lot of trauma that I've had to work through in the shadows a lot around being teased and bullied a lot as a kid just for being different or being, back then I didn't know that I was gay, but being more feminine, you know, as a young black boy growing up kind of in the hood, being feminine is not a good thing. (laughs) So a lot of kids, um, it actually got so bad that I used to live quite literally across the street from my elementary school. Like, and when I say across the street, I mean like the distance between the front gate of Esalen and the lodge front door, like that close. And my grandpa used to pick me up from school in his car because if I was walking home, my kids would like jump out of trees and like, you know, try to beat me up and stuff like that. So it's interesting because my parents, they had obviously their own stuff that they were dealing with. They were super young when they had us and divorced when I was six. So. For me, what happened and how that shaped a lot of who I became was when you grow up in that kind of environment, I think you have three ways of getting out of it. Way one is usually selling drugs and that doesn't really get you out of it. I mean, some people do, but kind of still in it, but at the top of it. Uh, Number two is playing sports and I was really bad at sports, like terrible. And number three is just being smart you know, and getting out through academics or getting out through school. And so I went the smart route. And I think I went the smart route, not just because I was like, oh, I need to be really smart and like, get out of here. That was part of it. But it also was the one thing that I was like validated for in my family and in at school where I was like teased for being feminine, even in my family, like not okay being gay. Like Justin was smart. And like that was what I got praised for. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do more of that, you know.
1: Uh, and what were you particularly smart at? What was your um, everything
0: thing? but science? Everything but science. Yeah, I loved writing. Um, I was pr- I was the overachiever kid. Like you know, graduated top of the class. Like the whole thing. Um, but for me, you know, what that did, Sam, is it it put me on this track that I think a lot of us get on, where our achievements become our worth and our value and then we as adults have to undo that like who are we who am i if i am not achieving and sing a song yeah man it's so many of us so many of us have the overachiever syndrome i wrote about an overachiever syndrome practice in my book for that reason because you know it's something that even still today i have to overcome
1: but talk to me a little bit about i know a little bit about your story um, when you went to UCLA, when you got a a full scholarship there, when you kind of got a, a really lucrative marketing gig, who were you in your young adulthood?
0: Yeah, so I continued the overachieving but went to the nth degree with it in college. So basically for me, what happened, grew up the way I grew up, checked every box there was to check, you know, on the list, top of the class, full-ride scholarship, to go to UCLA. I had so much money in scholarships, it was ridiculous. You know, it literally didn't make any sense how much money I had in scholarships. And so I get to LA for the first time in my life. I'm out of the closet, have extra money, living in this ritzy neighborhood now in Westwood in a beautiful, the new dorms that they had just built, you know, and had really created on the outside, on the external, had really created the life that I had always envisioned in my head. It was like exactly what I wanted, what I thought I wanted, you know? And what happened was after about a year, I had developed at the end of my freshman year of college a pretty bad eating disorder. It's, which is more common among guys than people give, you know, talk about. There's been so much movement for like, healthy body discussion for women, but, like, very little about that for men at all, you know? This, like, the same mannequin with, like, a big chest and shoulders or, like, super skinny has been the same mannequin of a guy that we've seen forever, you know? And so being in Los Angeles, I kind of succumbed to that and ended up getting a really bad eating disorder. I weighed 115 pounds by the end of my freshman year, which was really small for someone who's almost six feet tall. And I ended up needing to go to therapy when I kind of hit this bottom out moment when I collapsed on a treadmill in the student activity center and um, I couldn't like deny it anymore at that point so I, I get there and the therapist goes hey you should try meditation and I'm literally Sam I'm like meta what like that's that's actually what I said to him and you have to remember this is over a decade ago. Oprah hadn't done a meditation challenge, I didn't know any black people meditating, like I grew up in church, so I thought that was something wrong to do anyways. And so um, he just said, no, this is what it is. And the real reason was, I think what had happened for me is something that happens to a lot of us. We try to manipulate our external world to make ourselves feel better inside. And I didn't know anything else to do, you know, as a kid. I just thought, okay, once I achieve all these things, once my life looks like this, then I'll be happy, right? And I, when I wasn't, I didn't know what to do. And so the therapist recommending meditation to me, and uh, then me actually going to Borders, the bookstore, when that was a thing, and sitting in the self help section, and I actually closed my eyes. And I just sat, I sat on the floor in the self-help section. I remember thinking, how did I get here? You know, sitting on the floor in the self-help section of Borders. Had my eyes closed and picked up a book without looking. And the book that I picked up was A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. I was like, I didn't even know him. Didn't
1: know his name and never heard of him, but I was like, okay, this is the one I'm supposed to read. That is really crazy, Justin, because I similarly had an experience with finding that book for me, it was outside of a public library um, on Sunset in, in, in Echo Park. Wow. It, like the, not in the library, but somebody had left a box of books Like when it must have been closed. They wanted to donate it. I found that book, A New Earth, and it completely changed the game.
0: Library. Yeah, changed the game. Like Changed the game for me. That's amazing that that happened for you, too. And you found it at a library?
1: Outside the library <laughs> in a box of free books. That's
0: amazing. Yeah, so I, I, you know, and I wouldn't have known picking it up then what it was, and I remember starting to read it, and I was like, whoa, what, you know? And this opened my mind and was literally like my first foot.
1: What, what particularly about uh, Eckhart Tolle's *A New Earth* blew you away? So
0: many concepts, but beyond the concepts, what it was for me was, I had at that point in my life gone from growing up very religious. Um, taught catechism in catholic church and my dad's side being very christian and then kind of distancing myself from religion after coming out of the closet and like not being accepted in those communities you know a community where i'd like taught youth and like devoted my life and like i played jesus in the passion of christ play at my church you know like i was like in it and then to come out of the closet and be like no you can't be here anymore. I was like, I've been gay the whole time. You know, like, <laughs> I was gay when I was teaching your kids too. You know, like, there's nothing has changed. But that didn't matter. So I just was like, forget this. For, so I, for a, a little while, I, I still felt this belief in God, but I didn't know there was a possibility for spirituality outside of religion. I had never seen it, never seen it modeled to me. And so that... A New Earth kind of opened my mind to thinking, whoa, there's a whole other way of being that I haven't been exposed to, and I can kind of piece this together myself, you know, in a way that works for me, and that was a huge opening for me with that book, among a bajillion other things, you know.
1: I want to ask you about your writing and your, your teaching and your activism, but kind of before we get into that, yeah, you're a singer, and you yeah. like charted a top 20 album, so <laughs> tell, me, tell me about that and how that fits into who you are.
0: Yeah, so for me, music, I guess I, I can't tell, talk about this without telling the story about my grandma, so, um, and recording this today is actually the day after her birthday, so it's a really special day to be talking about this with you. So. Uh, Eight years ago now, my grandmother, who in my family we call my Baca, uh, was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and the doctors told her she had a couple months to live. And it was a huge shock to our family. She was seemingly young, 67, seemingly healthy, you know, not expecting anything like this to happen at all. And... So when it happened, I left LA, got on a flight, flew to the Bay Area, walked into her house, and she pulled me into the room and literally asked me a question that changed the trajectory of my entire life. She said, if you were in my shoes and you knew you were gonna die in two months, what would you do? And I looked at her and I'm like, What are you talking about? You know, I'm just thinking, why are we talking about this right now? She said, I've been wanting to talk to you about this for a long time, but now that I know I don't have a lot of time left, I'm going to ask you now. So do that meditation thing that you're always talking about (laughs) and close your eyes and listen inside. If you were in my shoes and you knew you were going to die in two months, what would you do? And so I closed my eyes and I put my hands over my heart and just immediately... I heard, it was like I heard these words coming out of me and I was just like, I would quit everything I'm doing and I would record an album, I would do music. So like contextually, at that point in my life, I had, again, on the outside, built what looked like the dream. I did everything, like graduated top of my class at UCLA, started a marketing company when I was in school, was making six figures, had an office in Santa Monica at 23. And I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this, like, first of all, for context. I was living, like, the life that I thought I was supposed to be living. But the same feeling, and when she asked me that question, I knew that the life that I created was a desire based on my desire to leave the circumstances that I had grown up in Not a desire to fulfill my dharma or my purpose. So I had spent my whole life really running away from being the poor black kid in the hood who got teased. You know, and that looked like being successful, having a nice car, having a big business, doing, the, you know, oh, I made it, you know. And in that process, I gave up my dream of doing music. And, you know, I think we all have these things. We all have these things in our lives that... We don't do because when we were younger, somebody told us we're too fat or we're too old or too ugly or too gay or too white or should have done it before you had kids or you're not good enough for some reason. And we rerun this outdated script in our minds and then up just oppressing ourselves. So that's what happened to me. And so when my grandma asked me this question, it just woke something up inside of me that I thought was gone, but it was not gone. It was like, you know, I think of The Alchemist, it was like, just waiting for me to turn towards it saying like oh you're still here and so because you don't break promises to your grandmother my grandma made me promise that i would record an album and you know when people look at it from the outside it looks like oh you just recorded this album no it was so much like Work on my inner critic, like work on the sabotage I was doing on myself and like the toxic voices from all those little kids who were teasing, that were just still there stopping me and breaking past those. And, you know, finally putting out the album was a huge deal.
1: How long did you work on it
0: for? Um, I worked on the album itself for really like writing it and recording it only like six months. It was like, once it was on, it was on, you know, I was, I was ready, but leading up to even being ready to do that was a full three and a half years, you know, four years until that happened.
1: And what was the journey like in terms of you've you've recorded it, it's ready to come out into the world, how did you birth it?
0: So it was interesting, and I don't get to talk about this often, so thank you for asking. So when I first started getting back into music, I had this regret feeling, thinking, damn, like, I'm good. And if I would have started younger, I would have been so good. So I had this like remorseful feeling of like, what would have happened if I would have started when I was 12, you know, and not let those kids get the best of me. And then what happened was the album came out and because I had built this audience as a marketing person, like having a marketing career for what had been six years at that point, And an audience speaking and stuff like that, through my marketing experience, I ended up getting the album to chart in the top 20 as an independent artist, you know, first album. And then that was a moment when I realized it's these teachings and these sayings that we know and we know and we know, but then you have to know it of like, oh, no experience is wasted. Yeah. Like you were, that's exactly what you were meant to do. Yeah. Because if you didn't have that marketing experience, you would not be doing this now. And so I think when we can honor our journey and honor what's happened in the past and not say that it's happened to us, but it's happened for us, I think Oprah says that a lot, You know, then we're able to use those experiences to grow.
1: What has been your lived experience of this current cultural moment? Would you talk a little bit about where what it has been like for you specifically as a black man. What's going on?
0: Can I tell you something, Sam? Wow, I feel really emotional with you saying that. I have done, I can't even count on my fingers and toes how many interviews I've done about this topic and not one person has asked me how am I doing. Really? Everyone's just asked me, what do I think? And like, what, what do I say about it? But not like, how am I doing? Um, So thank you. What it's been like for me has been really fascinating, if I can be honest with you. It's been an interesting perspective, and I think a lot of black leaders are feeling this privately, is in the beginning of it, I felt like my nervous system was completely just jacked up because what I was having to do was experience the trauma that everyone else was seeing, band-aid myself up like real quick so that I could say something to the world about it you know and so I ended up with all these band-aids on and a lot of wounds that like hadn't healed you know the first couple months and there was a moment when I was like I'm so for me out of alignment is probably different than most but for me I was off-center you know and it um It didn't feel good and and that was when I had a moment when I was like, okay, I need to practice what I preach. I need to disconnect for a second. It's okay to disconnect for a second. It's not irresponsible for me to disconnect for a second and just gather myself and go to that space that's like endless and infinite within me and us and just rejuvenate. And once I did that, and reevaluated my relationship with, like, the media and what I was taking in, I was able to show up differently in the world and speak without trying to make myself say something. I was moved to say something, you know? And so it's, it's hard when you're, when you're in the demographic of people who are being oppressed. And for me to watch the video, literally, of George Floyd, and that night, you know, get called to, like, make a statement about it. Like for an interview, I was like, do you want to know what I really feel? Or like, you know, <laughs> what do you want me to say? I don't know. This is messed up, you know, Like I don't know. And then I'm like, okay, you do know, like go in. So it's been a, it's been a journey. And I think it's something that people need to just be conscious of, you know, as, as they're engaging other leaders who are speaking as a part of the movement and who's, who've used their voice as a part of that is like,
1: we're experiencing it all with you. And um, it's really deep. So this country is dealing with racism in a way that's, that's very public and very externalized in a way that I think is necessary. And part of your mission seems to be dealing with issues like racism in an internal way. So yeah. can you talk to me a little bit about the, what you do? Yeah,
0: you do that? yeah, absolutely. So all of my work, everything from the music, through the meditation, through all my work around racial and social justice, is quite literally about the internal work that we all must do to make the external world show up differently. It's exactly what my story is about. It's the whole thing for me because this is what I really believe is we can elect a new president, we can defund the police, we could tear the whole system down, we could we can just burn it all down. And all we would do if we haven't done the internal work on ourselves to change at the level of being, is rebuild the same thing that looks slightly different. We would impress somebody else, we would do something different. And so th- this is the thing that I have to be careful and make sure I'm saying. I think the external stuff that's happening is, is important. Yes. It is important. And there needs to be like an equal force of internal work happening at the same time. Otherwise, we're just going to end up in circles. And I give I give an example about this that people can usually relate to because when I'm talking about this in like social justice spaces or whatever, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, okay, internal work." But like, no, very practically. How many of you have been in a relationship with somebody, dating or married or in, you know in a partnership, got out of that relationship because you knew it wasn't right for you, took some time, got in a new relationship? And then a few months later, realize you're in the same relationship with a different person, right? And when that happens, when you're in these cycles of like, how can I be dating a different person but I'm in the same spot? It's because we haven't changed at the level of being. We haven't done the internal work to show up for the relationship differently, you know? And, and that's what I think is needed in the social justice space right now is how can we show up for the relationship that we have with each other, with our planet, with all the things differently? and if we don't do the internal work it's, there's going to be a lot of pain and death and breaking stuff down and just rebuilding it again
1: so what does the internal work look like in a in a practical way are we talking about yoga are we talking about no meditation so, i mean sure but like so so, so sure in terms of
0: like those can all be some tools that you can use. But no, going to yoga class four days a week is not going to be your internal work. Like, you can try, but that's not going to be it. I'm going to just let you know it's not going to be enough. And I'm not dissing yoga. I do yoga. But there's a deeper level of shadow work that's being required here for us. And um, there are several things, but one that I feel called to share right now, and two things that I'll say is, I think black indigenous people of color And white people actually have different internal work to do. And that's a really important thing to name. Some of the work we need to do together. Some of it we need to do separately. And so like one of the things that we need to do separately is when black people are, well, I'll say it this way. If we are trying to end up in a world where we are coming together and honoring our differences, but knowing that we're stronger as a whole. And being able to eventually end up in a world where racism is over, you know, is not a thing anymore. Then, one of the ways to get there, one of the things we're gonna have to work through is black people and people of color need to learn how to process their anger. We need to learn how to process our anger. Because if we only know how to express anger, but not how to process it, then we're just continually just letting it move through us and re-traumatize us and putting it out in the world. If the goal is eventually to come together, we need to know how to hold and have the capacity to hold and process our anger in a healthy way, not to mute ourselves and be silent. Processing anger doesn't mean it always has to look peaceful, but to move through it, to be able to come out on the other side of it. So that we can be stronger and healthier for ourselves, first and foremost, and secondly, so that we can show up for the conversation differently. And white people, for example, uh, there's so many things that need to be processed for, on both sides, but one that I see with a lot of people in my community is a little bit about the shame that comes up when they're doing their social justice work. And like realizing like how much harm whiteness has done in the world and then feeling so bad about it and then like not knowing what to do and not knowing how to say anything about it because they're trying to be perfectionists. The thing is, is to be able to sit with it, not to torture yourself, but to move through it, right? Like we can't move around it. We can't spiritually bypass it. That's not gonna work here. You know, Marianne Williamson said so beautifully, like there is a level of atonement that's needed right now you know in the world and like a real reconciliation for what's actually happened and we're the ones who have to do it no one else can do it for us we're doing it for the generations backwards and forwards and now so anyway i think there's a lot of internal work that has to happen so that we can be healthy ourselves and so that we can come together decolonizing our wellness practices. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. So wellness beyond whiteness, you know, which is it is shifting, I'm going to say. The wellness world is diversifying if you look around, and it's a beautiful thing. And what's happening as it's diversifying is things are changing. As you bring people of color into a space where their practices have been you know completely co-opted they're gonna be like wait a second you know like hold on yeah i mean so here's the thing there's the whole conversation about cultural appropriation and Layla saad has this fantastic um leila saad wrote the book me and white supremacy she, she has this fantastic kind of equation for appropriation and i think it's like dominance like it requires dominance to appropriate somebody's culture you know And so, what's happened if we really look at the history of the world? I'm not saying what's happened is like, you as an individual person have done this, you know, but the system that we're living in, you know, what's happened is, all of these practices, I'm not saying some of them, I'm saying all of the practices that we do in the wellness space originate and come from people of color. All of them. Everything.
1: Meditation. Thank you. I had not really, that had not registered in my mind completely until you just said that. Thank you. All of them. If you really think about that, like there's all
0: of them. And so what's happened is the practices, what happened to people of color is their worlds were colonized, the practices were demonized and taken away from them, and they were told they cannot use or do these practices or they will be killed literally. And then the practices get co-opted and then whitewashed and then sold back to us in a way that we actually sometimes feel like, well, that's not for us. You know, I remember people telling me like, oh, well, those, th- that's for white people. That's not for us. And I'm like, we invented this. What are you talking about? How is this not for us? But that's the oppression living within, you know? And so this is a lot of what I have a mission to undo in the wellness world. And it's not just to open the gates and the door for people of color to come back home to themselves in these practices, but it's for us to come together in these practices. I, (laughs) So when I give presentations often, I show this image. um, I presented at Google on the kickstart of my book tour. It was incredible. And just as a test for myself, I was like, hmm, I wonder if I Google search meditation, like how many pages it would take to see a black man. First of all, it took 10 pages to see a black man meditating, 10, 10 Google search pages just to see one black man. Don't even go black queer man, like, you know, add that to the box, you know, the checklist. But before I saw a picture of a black man meditating, I saw dogs meditating. I saw everything under the sun meditating, bugs meditating, trees with faces on them meditating, you know, and so I get why when people look at me and they say, oh, you're a meditation teacher? You know, people look at me like, what? You don't look like a meditation teacher. And I get it, I don't, you know? But the thing is, is this practice is for all of us, you know, and there are actually so many young black queer meditation leaders out there right now whose voices are just not being heard. And I think uh, it's one of my jobs to make sure I elevate those voices as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about one of your um, wellness or meditation mentors, Lauren Roche, uh, that he said to you, the fact that there are going to be people who need to learn from you, not him.
0: Yeah, so Lauren Roche is, has been my mentor. I would absolutely not be sitting here with you today if it wasn't for him. I mean, uh, meeting him was a huge turning point in my life. He when I was in my early 20s, just took me under his wing and quite literally taught me everything he knew for free. He was on speed dial on my phone. It was my first real experience of having an actual mentor, like a real mentor or a teacher. And uh, when we first started practicing together, when he offered to me to, he literally said, I'll teach you everything I know. And I looked at him and I said, why? And he said, one day there are going to be people who need to hear your voice who don't need to hear mine and at that point i got what he was saying but i don't think i really got it until the moment came when my voice needed to be heard you know and uh yeah so lauren really changed my life with all of that
1: well talk to me about stay woke it's the first meditation book written by a black queer man the first meditation book that intersects social justice and racial justice So talk to me about that and the interplay between internal and external progress.
0: Yeah. So I will say there's, there are a lot of people who've come before me to incorporate like spiritual practices with social justice. And I think with a book that specifically is using meditation as a tool, you know, it's definitely one of the first. And for me, here's the thing, Sam, it's like sending love and light is not enough it's not enough it's important that we do it i'm not knocking it i'm not dissing it right compassion practices all the things i've done all of them okay i've been practicing for i'm not this kid who's been practicing for two years i've been practicing for over a decade which is a long time considering i'm only 32 you know and so it it's like a third of my life and if it was enough if sending love and light and compassion and prayers and thoughts were enough We wouldn't be in the state we're in in the world right now. Our environment wouldn't be how it is. We wouldn't be seeing the lives lost that we're seeing. We wouldn't be having kids detained at the border like this. So my mission, and I think the real purpose of my book, is to get people to get off their asses and use their practice to do something in the world. Mm -hmm. And and that is the, the essence is meditation and mindfulness and going inward so it can inspire us to take action that is aligned with the truth of who we are and the truth of our highest self. You know, like, that's why I even wrote a meditation book. I say very clearly in the book is that, like, I actually don't really care about meditation that much, to be honest with you. Like, you won't see anywhere in my bio, Justin is a meditation teacher. I don't write it that way, I am but I only teach meditation because I think it is the most important tool that we can use to change the world and change our lives. And so the the book is a book that helps not only center you in a practice that I feel like um, will actually work in your life, but a practice that will help change your life, the lives of your family, the lives of one another and the community and the world and, and all of that. We can talk about virtue signaling. Let's talk about virtue signaling. (laughs) You and I had this funny conversation on the phone a little bit.
1: And I was like, part of the thing that has kept me from, I think, um, from doing some of the anti-racist work that I've been interested in for quite some time but haven't been actually engaged in is this deep desire not to engage in virtue signaling. Because in my mind, it's like, oh, I'm going to look like schmuck in front of everybody because I want them to think that I'm great or whatever and your response to that was do you remember
0: yes I remember I said like well at least something's getting signaled like at least we're signaling something right and here's the thing this is my take and people will argue with me on this on the virtue signaling thing virtue signaling for people who don't know what it means is you are posting about anti-racist work but not actually doing the work and posting about it to say that, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. and But you're not actually doing it so that people, it's just building your ego. So people think you're great. It's about your recognition, not about the work. And people have labeled this thing virtue signaling to say, don't do that. You should be doing your work in private. You know, don't make it about you. No, don't make it about you. But my honest truth, opi- true opinion is if, I mean, like, the white supremacists are not saying, oh, we shouldn't virtue signal. Like, what? No. Like, we need our voices to be louder than these other voices. And I think if all the white people who are doing anti-racist work are quiet about it, then other white people don't know that they're doing the work. And so then they don't know how many of their friends are actually engaged in the work. So then they can't even have conversations with the people. They can't be called deeper into it. It's like hiding a hospital in the middle, you know, in the middle of a forest, when there's a bunch of sick people around, like, why would you hide the
1: hospital? It's kind of funny. It's, that's, I really appreciate that point of view, because there's a lot of anger. I was listening to this wonderful conversation between um, Krista Tippett and a gentleman named Resma. Okay. Um, yep. I, for, I forget his last name, but he's just like so. He finds the virtue signaling thing and the white people calling themselves the ally just so detestable, and it's like. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. But putting that anger out there kind of freezes the, the so-called yeah. allies in our tracks because we don't, hey, man, uh, to me, the worst thing is getting called out and feeling shame and humiliation. So yep. like, shit, maybe I will just like keep toning it down and just be invisible because that has worked yeah. in the past.
0: Yes. and And this is why the internal work is so important because number one. This moment is gonna be messy. We've never done this before. No one in history has ever done this before. There has never been a moment in history where these two sides have come together to have the level of conversation that we're having now with the literature and the books and the resources and the plans and the courses. This has never happened. So how the hell would we know how to do it right, mm-hmm. number one. Yeah. Number two is if we're, doing, if we're not doing our internal work, we won't know how to hold and process shame when someone calls us out. We won't know how to hold and process anger when it comes up within us. So instead, we back away from it all. And so that's why the internal work is so important because it builds our capacity to actually hold the space in our hearts to step into this moment and give it the full capacity of who we are and what it needs. So anyway, I think that I... This is my personal opinion. I would rather people be virtue signaling than not signaling at all. Mm -hmm. Because if not, and what I would rather than virtue signaling is people actually doing the deep work and posting stuff about it that is really centering the movement. That would be my ultimate preference. But if you don't know how to do that yet and you're not sure if you're doing that and you're not doing that, it's, I think it's better to say something. I think everyone, especially the different black leaders who are very much on the forefront of all of this, have opinions that should be respected and valued. And... I think if we aren't sounding the alarm and if every white person who's doing anti-racist work, if all of your friends don't know that you're doing it, that is a shame because we're missing out on essential conversations. We're missing out on the ability to go deeper. We're missing out on the ability to talk more all because of the fear that you're going to be called out. And we got to step past that. Mm -hmm. Would you share for me your
1: experience of being at Esalen?
0: I came to Esalen my very first time, I'd never heard of the place. Never heard of it. I think I was 23, 22, something like this. Right when I was, you know, everything was shifting for me in a pretty big way. And uh, one of my teachers, Sianna Sherman, she was teaching the yoga festival thing that was happening here and she was like, hey, do you want to go to this place in Big Sur called Esalen? You have to get naked in the hot springs like if you come. (laughs) And I was like, what? Like, I just was like, uh, uh, okay, whatever. She's like, just come, promise. So I came and I slept. I assisted her in the yoga thing and I slept in the art barn in a sleeping bag, you know, my first time here. And I fell in love with this place right away. This place has become such a refuge for me in so many ways. I've been here, I think, maybe 10 or 11 times. This might be my 11th time right now. And I've come here for workshops. I've come here to assist. I wrote my book proposal here, I wrote a huge chunk of my book here, and it's been an interesting experience being at Esalen because I started coming, sleeping in the sleeping bag, and then you know transitioning to assisting, and then coming on my own, and then now being faculty for the first year um, and teaching workshops here. It's been the most beautiful becoming, and I feel really honored, to be honest, and like so excited to welcome my community here. Because this place for me, when I come, I usually am completely offline. Like I don't post about it, I don't do anything. This is like my, has been my like sacred space, you know, that I to to recharge and get creative. And so now that I get to invite my community here really excites me, especially with the diversity that's in my community, to see that kind of diversity on this property, excites me more than anything.
1: When you envision a just, equitable, diverse Esalen, what does that look like for you? Hmm.
0: So, uh, I'll say this first. It looks like all of the work that has to happen to welcome diversity first happening from the ground up. Right, and so, you know, having the black people come to Esalen and there not being any black staff is weird (laughs) in 2020 in California, (laughs) you know? It just is. It's like, wait, are there no black people here? Like at all, you know? And that's bizarre. But I don't think that Esalen can honestly like even start to diversify the staff authentically in a place that has historically been mostly white. You know, it's not like this place just opened. It's like has a very white history. So it's like, okay, what about this space might need to adjust to welcome in a more diverse audience and not just welcome them in and make them adjust to the space, but to adjust the space to welcome in the people. Right. And so that is, um, I think, the first step. And and the reason that has to happen is because if if you're not... And this goes for everyone, not just Esalen. Like if you're an organization or a person or anybody and you're just welcoming in new black voices and like calling black leaders to come or people of color and any people to come and you haven't done any of the work yourself it's just tokenizing them like oh look I have black friends that must mean I'm not racist anymore that's how it looks for an organization too but what you have to know is you have to make the space safe for people of color to even come here you know and so that that feels really important to me because If I, when I bring a super diverse audience to Esalen, you know, I need to know that, you know, Esalen's not a hotel, obviously. So it's not, like, people are here processing their deepest stuff. So I need to know that if my black and brown brothers and sisters are processing their deepest stuff, then they're not going to experience some trauma from a volunteer on the farm and garden. Do you know what I mean? Because that's racist. So I think all of it has to start again with the internal work that has to be done organizationally, individually, to change the outside world.
1: Do you have any suggestions too for the internal work in terms of like, what would that look like when it's just...
0: First thing is read Layla Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy. That's literally for... That's for SLN staff. That's for everybody listening. If you're white, that book is simple, amazing, effective. And what I love about Layla Saad's work, I don't think I've ever like, I talk about currently I talk about her book more than I talk about mine and because I think, to be honest, it's more important in this moment in history and the way that she comes at white supremacy is from this place that I think a lot of people aren't used to feeling and hearing her place that I, I experience her coming from is she goes, look I know you're a good person I know you love all people. I know that you are great and you want to do good and see an equitable and just world. And there are some things in your blind spot you might not be seeing. So let's look at those things so that we can do even better. And I love that place of love that she's coming from of like, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it better versus like, you guys are doing everything wrong, you know, and like, it's not like that. I mean, she'll call you forward into quite a few things, but that book, I think if you read that book, you can't unlearn what you learned, and it's going to change everything for you moving forward. Awesome. So I think one of the things that I want to make sure I center in this conversation is youth and the work around youth. And um, I had the absolute blessing when my book came out. So my, my book is published by Sounds True, which I'm sure a lot of people in our community know. And when I finished my book, I had the idea that instead of going on a normal book tour where you go to like all the most privileged neighborhoods in the United States in bookstores, let's flip that upside down. Let's go to high schools and colleges in the most underprivileged neighborhoods in the United States. Let's go to Southside Chicago. Let's go to Flint, Michigan. Let's go to Detroit. Let's go to Oakland. And let's go and do like a big TED Talk meets a music concert style event for the kids so we can meet them in their context, teach them how to meditate, and surprise all the kids and give them a book. And you, so first of all, I had the idea, and here I am, a first-time author, and I called Tammy Simon. And I said, Tammy, I have this idea. So you should have, like, I was nervous because I thought, here I am, the audacity of this first-time author to say, I think we should give away my book to all these kids. And Tammy, from her heart, said, I think this is an amazing idea. And so last year, in the beginning of this year, We raised $195,000 to go to, we were only trying at first to raise $100,000. We raised $195,000 to go to schools all across the United States and uh, to really give these kids, who literally, like when my publisher, they were kind of shocked because they had never worked with this demo before. They said, well, let's look for the evening event to do a bookstore. And I knew what was gonna happen, but I wait for them to wrote back. They were like, oh, there's no bookstores in these cities. I was like, yes, that's what I'm telling you guys. There's not even a book store in the city. So like, do you see how much we're needed here? This might be the only book in these kids' homes, you know? And then they got it. And so what's been such a blessing is we've had support from the community and donors, and uh, we raised enough money to go to like 20 cities, 15 or 20 cities. We did three cities and then COVID happened. But the beautiful thing is, We're starting to do it virtually now, which is amazing and it's working really well. And we're also picking up again in person when that's possible. And so what I just wanna say is for anybody who's asking, what can you do? We're still raising money to go to as many schools and as many kids as possible. And it's not a huge expensive thing. It literally costs $8 per child to support a kid to do this. And you could even sponsor it or bring us to your city or anything like that. And so the website to go to to do that, and it's all tax-deductible and everything, is staywokegiveback.org. Staywokegiveback.org. And that'll take you to the Sounds True Foundation where you can see all about the project, all the different cities, all about sponsoring, and donate to help us take this to the kids who need us. Because they, if they needed us before, they really need us now. So I just want to make sure people know that giving to our youth is a huge important part of this mission and the work we need to be doing in the world while us adults are figuring it out, (laughs) you know? Esalen is a place historically that has created major thought leadership in the world. And the thought leadership that's needed in the world right now is not more personal growth. (laughs) It's not more self-expanding work. It's the collective work that needs to be done. That's what we need thought leadership on right now. That's where we need new ideas from. That's where we need to bring diverse leaders who are doing incredible work in the world together and give them this sacred land and space to see what blossoms open from them when they're given this land and being taken care of. And because they're all out in the world having to deal with all this trauma all the time and then do their work and create on top of that. So imagine when they have a moment to just incubate and to have the level of self-care that's given to you, even just all your food, all of that taken care of and soaking in the springs, and then saying, what can we do to change the world from there? That'll be big. I think so. I think if Esalen said, we are gonna host in 2021, you know, given the possibility with COVID, you know, a all-campus event with some diverse social justice and environmental justice leaders that is free for all of them and we're calling on companies who might want to sponsor and support this. People would be jumping at that. Who would not, what? uh, Like we could pay for that tomorrow if Esalen said, we're doing this. Who wants to join us? Game changer.
1: Maybe you're the man to make it happen. Maybe I can help you.
0: Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm so serious. Yeah, I, I think we can, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Justin Michael Williams, thanks so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.